This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello, and welcome to Rand. I'm Lindsay Cosberg, Vice President for External Affairs at the Rand Corporation. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our speaker. Ali Reza Nader is a senior international policy analyst at RAND who specializes in Iran's political dynamics, elite decision-making, and foreign policy. He is the co-author of Israel and Iran, A Dangerous Rivalry, and Coping with a Nuclearizing Iran, and he is a frequent commentator and has testified on Iran-related issues before the U.S. Congress. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Nader. Good evening. Thank you very much, Lindsay, for uh, your warm introduction. It's a great pleasure to be here speaking before you tonight. Uh, It's good to get out of Washington, D.C. Santa Monica is a much nicer and relaxed place in D.C. Tonight, I just want to briefly talk about uh, the current uh, nuclear negotiations with Iran, the Iranian regime's decision-making and viewpoints regarding the nuclear program and negotiations, and where we are in terms of U.S. policy options. And I think tonight actually is a great night to talk about Iran. Uh, We just concluded the Moscow talks between the P5 plus one, the U.N. Security Council plus Germany, and Iran. And the talks, according to initial reports and assessments, did not go well. Uh, They were negative. My Contacts in Moscow told me that talks between the Iranian representatives and the P5 plus one were very tense, uh, that uh, the two sides seemed to have a very hard time coming uh, to a mutual agreement and that they were wide apart uh, on a lot of different issues. Um, A couple of months ago, actually, there was more optimism regarding the nuclear negotiations. If you recall, uh, the negotiations restarted in Istanbul, Uh, Then last month took place in Baghdad. And a lot of analysts, including myself, uh, were a little more positive regarding uh, the nuclear negotiations. Uh, And I want to talk about some of the positive indications that the negotiations could go at least slightly well. Um, One of the key factors uh, that Iran was more willing to come to the negotiation table and uh, be more serious about negotiations really uh, involved the domestic political dynamics within Iran. Iran. We have to look at Iran as a political system and see what's really happening in Iran in terms of their decision-making. And in the last year and a half or or so, um, Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei has consolidated power in Iran. Uh, Before, one of the issues with Iran uh, negotiating with the P5 plus one uh, was the fact that the Iranian polity was very divided against itself. Uh, There are many voices speaking uh, for Iran, including the Supreme Leader Khamenei, but also the President, uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, and a number of other actors. And I would often hear from U.S. government officials uh, and diplomats, well, who do we talk to in Iran? Uh, Who do we sit down with? Who makes decisions? Uh, Who can we negotiate with ultimately? How do we understand them? Uh, In 2009, the P5 plus one was actually close uh, to reaching a deal with Iran. And the deal uh, basically would have looked like this. Uh, Iran would uh, ship out its highly enriched uranium. Uh, it's enriching uranium to 20%, which makes it easier to use in a nuclear weapon. Uh, and in return uh, for shipping out their enriched uranium, Iran would receive 
uh, fuel for uh, the Tehran research reactor to use the medical isotopes. And uh, there was a point that uh, a a deal could be reached. uh, In 2009, however, because of the Iranian presidential elections, uh, millions of Iranians turned out into the streets. The elections uh, were widely viewed in Iran as being fraudulent. And uh, this weekend, the Iranian regime's ability to reach a consensus on a deal on the nuclear program. It wasn't clear who was speaking for Iran. It wasn't even clear in 2009 whether the Iranian regime would last. Um, And after the elections, President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad publicly challenged the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei. In April 2011, Ahmadinejad dismissed as Minister of Intelligence uh, despite Khamenei's objections, and reportedly Khamenei threatened uh, uh, to have Ahmadinejad resign or even fire him from his position uh, or pressure him out of his position. Ahmadinejad skipped his cabinet meetings uh, for 10 days. And this was a public challenge to Khamenei, the supreme leader. After 2011, the conservative elite within Iran turned against Ahmadinejad members of the Revolutionary Guards officers who were supposedly his support base started attacking him in public. And since then, Ahmadinejad has been a much diminished figure within Iran. You don't see him as much on CNN. You don't see him being as assertive and active regarding Iran's diplomacy. Uh, earlier this year, the Iranian parliamentary elections took place, and again, Khamenei's allies within parliament uh, won. So Khamenei has really emerged in the last two years as Iran's key decision maker on the nuclear program. Uh, he sidelined Ahmadinejad effectively. And in fact, Iran's representative to the P5 plus, nine, uh, plus 5, Saeed Jalili, has been labeled as Khamenei's personal representative uh, to uh, the negotiations. So a lot of analysts felt this was a positive uh, development, that it would be easier to negotiate with Iran. A uh, second reason for optimism has to do with sanctions against Iran. Uh, sanctions against Iran have had a tremendous impact on its economy in the last few months, especially uh, sanctions against the Iranian central bank um, passed by Congress have had an effect. A lot of countries are now afraid to do business with Iran, and the central bank sanctions have been critical. In addition, the European Union is set to embargo Iranian oil in July. Next month, Iran has a month. Uh, And once the European uh, Union embargoes Iranian oil, Iran's ability to export oil and earn revenues will dramatically decrease. According to some reports, Iran's uh, oil revenue exports have declined by 40% in the last few months. And once the Europeans start boycotting Iran, uh, it will go down further. And it's not just the Europeans. Uh, China, India, Russia, or I should say Japan, South Korea, are all uh, reducing their exports of Iran's oil. So the Iranian regime is right now under tremendous pressure. And it, it is this pressure that has brought Iran to the negotiating table. Three years ago, the Iranians were not serious about negotiating. They wanted to talk about other issues uh, they wanted to uh, discuss historical wrongs against Iran, etc. But now they're much more willing to talk about the nitty-gritty of the nuclear program. So, so those are some of the 
positive indications. But I think the picture uh, is quite negative overall. And the reason for this is we have to put the negotiations in perspective. We can't just look at the nuclear program in isolation. And I think one of the most critical uh, judgments and analysis we can um, uh, that can take place is to look at Khamenei's interest as the Iran supreme leader, to so look at what Khamenei believes regarding nuclear negotiations, what are his interests as Iran's uh, ultimate decision maker. Now, Khamenei is not an irrational man. Uh, he makes decisions based on cost-benefit calculations. He's a shrewd politician. He's uh, lasted Iranian politics for three decades. And so he's not a stupid man. He's a smart man. But at the same time, Khamenei is also ideological. His uh, worldview is formed by his personal experiences and ideology, uh, including being tortured in the Shah's jails. Uh, this has made him uh, into a very anti-American figure in Iranian politics. And Khamenei, looking at his speeches and his statements and his writings, has consistently portrayed the relationship between the United States and the Islamic Republic as one of an existential battle. Khamenei believes that the United States is out to overthrow his regime. Uh, he doesn't believe that the United States just opposes Iranian behavior regarding the nuclear program and its behavior in the region. He has said himself that the United States opposes the very essence of the Islamic Republic. Khamenei has said that if the nuclear issue is solved, then the U.S. will look for other excuses to oppose a regime. He said that the United States is after excuses, that the nuclear program is uh, just part of the U.S. Uh, agenda. Khamenei also may view uh, an Iranian nuclear capability as a form of military deterrence against the United States. He's seen the United States invade Afghanistan and Iraq and overthrow the regimes with relative ease in 2001 and 2003. So even if he doesn't want nuclear weapons per se, he may see a nuclear capability, a virtual or latent capability, as forming a deterrence against U.S. military power. Also, Khamenei sees the nuclear program as a matter of revolutionary pride and prestige. Uh, in his speeches, he keeps talking about the Islamic Republic making advances in the scientific field, especially the nuclear program, despite the sanctions and the international pressures. And Khamenei is very proud of this. He thinks if Iran makes these scientific and nuclear achievements, that it will enhance the regime's position in the Middle East, that other Muslim countries uh, will look to Iran as a key Muslim leader, not just in the Middle East, but across the world. In addition, uh, there are signs that Khamenei thinks that time is on his side, that ultimately he will come out of this conflict, the nuclear crisis, as the winner. Looking at the Arab uprisings that have taken place in the Middle East in the last year and a half, Khamenei has called them an Islamic awakening. In the United States, uh, we call them Arab Spring or Arab uprisings. Khamenei has described them an Islamic awakening. And for Khamenei, the Arab uprisings are really the result of Iran's 1979 revolution. He claims that uh, the region's Arabs are inspired by the Islamic Republic and the model it has set up for the region. Um, and that the United States and uh, U.S. Po 
power in the region is really in decline in the Middle East. Uh, he looks at uh, our troubles in Iraq and Afghanistan, the overthrow of pro-American regimes in Egypt, Yemen, and across the region as a sign of weakness for the United States. And he thinks that time is on Iran's side. And this is really contrary to evidence that we have. Uh, no serious analyst outside of Iran will actually argue that uh, the Arab uprisings have been inspired uh, by the Islamic Republic or Khamenei. In fact, a lot of Iranians will tell you that the uprisings were not inspired so much by the Iranian revolution of 1979, but Iranians going into the streets in 2009, the Green Revolution or uprising uh, in 2009. But this is nevertheless Khamenei's viewpoint. And he may uh, make these statements uh, for political effect, uh, but I think he's really serious. This is his worldview. This is how he sees the world. Um, and part of the issue, I think, is that Khamenei has surrounded himself with a very close uh, group of advisors, uh, very ideological revolutionary guards officers uh, who fought in the Iran-Iraq war and have been scarred by that conflict and really believe in this concept of an existential fight between uh, the United States and the Islamic Republic. Uh, Khamenei has also sidelined a lot of more pragmatic people who can give him better advice. Uh, for example, the former president, Ayatollah Rafsanjani, has effectively been sidelined from the political system. His power has really decreased. The reformists, uh, including uh, people like former President Khatami, has, have as well been sidelined. And when you look at the speeches and beliefs of these key people, they warn Iran that it should take the sanctions seriously, that it should take military conflict seriously, that sanctions uh, are not a joke, as President Ahmadinejad has claimed. But nevertheless, these uh, individuals are not making decisions uh, in Iran. And so what about the Iranian population? How does the Iranian population uh, feel about the nuclear program? Uh, I myself uh, did a rant survey on Iranian public opinion in 2009, and I admit that surveys are not perfect, but a lot of Iranians supported the civilian nuclear program, but a lot of Iranians were opposed to nuclear weapons. Uh, Iranians may support Iran's right to enrich uranium, but they don't necessarily want nuclear weapons. So Khamenei on these key issues is potentially isolated. His viewpoints on the nuclear program, his statements that Nuclear technology is Iran's inalienable right does not do not necessarily resonate with the entire political system and the Iranian population. In fact, even senior members of the Revolutionary Guards have been critical of Khamenei, not necessarily because of the nuclear program, but because of its leadership style and decision making. Uh, former senior Revolutionary Guards officer by the name of uh, uh, Hossein Alayi, the founder of the Revolutionary Guards Navy, the same Navy that would fight the United States in the Persian Gulf if there is a conflict, wrote a letter to an Iranian newspaper several months ago. And the letter implicitly is addressed to Khamenei. Of course, explicitly he addresses it to the Shah and uh, asks the Shah uh, if he had not cracked down on the Iranian publish, population, whether he would be in power today. If he had been more democratic, uh, would he have been forced to flee in Iran? But in, within Iran, the letter was seen as addressed to Khamenei. And uh, there were protests against this Revolutionary Guards officer. People rioted outside his house. But he got away with it. And then other figures came and supported him and said, 
Well, the supreme leader should be open to criticism. He should at answer and address the Iranian people's concerns. If he does not, then he should resign. And I think that's very incredible within the Iranian political system, an authoritarian system, for individuals to come out and explicitly criticize Khamenei. So Khamenei is in, in his position is somewhat isolated. He doesn't necessarily have the complete support of the Iranian people and even the revolutionary guards. So having said all of this, where does this leave us in terms of U.S. policy options? As I stated, the Moscow talks uh, did not go very well. Um, And there's a danger that the talks could collapse, uh, increasing the chances for a military conflict with Iran. I think if the talks collapse, there is a greater chance that Israel will strike Iran's nuclear facilities and a greater chance that the United States will be involved uh, yet in another war in the Middle East. Uh, to date, the U.S. has built a very broad and deep coalition to sanction Iran. And I think this has been a very important achievement that doesn't get as much as recognition as it should. The Obama administration has been able to gather uh, the Europeans, uh, other Middle Eastern countries, and even to some extent China and India and Japan and South Korea to pressure Iran. And this in itself is very important. But if there's a military strike against Iran, then that would imperil the coalition that has been created by the United States. Iran can play the victim It can kick out the IEA international inspectors and really decide to go forward with its uh, nuclear program. The sanctions have done a good job of raising the cost for Iran's nuclear program. And it is the assessment of the U.S. intelligence community that Iran's leadership, including the supreme leader, has not made the decision to weaponize uh, the program that Iran is building the capability and the infrastructure to create nuclear weapons, but doesn't, has not necessarily made the decision yet uh, to weaponize the program. Uh, but if Israel attacks Iran, then Khamenei has a better justification to weaponize the program. Khamenei himself publicly has said that Iran does not want nuclear weapons. Uh, he has stated that nuclear weapons are anti-Islamic. And you know, we don't have to believe that Khamenei is sincere about this. Him having said this creates a red line for Iran. If Khamenei decides to uh, cross this red line in the future, then he has to explain himself not only to the international community but the Iranian people uh, as to why he's decided to weaponize. But if there's a military conflict against Iran, if there's an Israeli or U.S. military attack, then it will be much easier for Iran to cross this red line. Uh, It is an assessment of a lot of analysts in the United States, but also in Israel, that the Israeli Air Force can do limited damage to Iran's nuclear facilities. A lot of them are hardened and deeply buried. Um, In fact, Israeli uh, politicians have said that they can potentially set back Iran's program for three to five years. Uh, Short of a full... U.S. invasion and occupation of Iran, it is unlikely that the Iranian nuclear crisis can be solved through military means. So having said that, although the Moscow talks uh, don't look very positive right now, we have to give negotiations uh, space. Just for the fact that negotiations will increase the pressure against the Iranian regime, sanctions will undermine its power, and 
contain its influence across the Middle East. The United States should seek to push the regime's influence back across the Arab world while containing it and hoping for a better future. And I think the ultimate solution to the Iranian nuclear crisis, but really the crisis with Iran in the last three decades, is real democracy in Iran. As long as Khamenei's regime is in power in Iran, we're not going to see a resolution to the nuclear crisis or any other issue uh, we have with the Islamic Republic. And although Khamenei claims that his regime is different than a lot of these Arab regimes that have been overthrown, I think the reality is quite different. His regime is very much alike and similar to uh, the Arab regimes that have seen uprisings. In fact, the Iranian regime is very vulnerable. The same factors that have led to uprisings within the Arab world exist in Iran. High unemployment, inflation, social repression, corruption, the list goes on and on. And although Iranians have not come into the streets in the last three years to protest against the government, this does not mean that the Iranian regime is strong. Uh, some people portray it as being a strong player within Iran and an important interlocutor because of its strength. However, the same conditions exist that existed in 2009. If anything, conditions in Iran have gotten worse. And I think that the Iranian people, those who oppose the regime and its policies, are waiting for another opportunity. Uh, they're waiting for new leadership, for Iranians uh, to come and show them the way out of uh, this crisis they're facing. And today, the Green Movement's leadership is under house arrest. Uh, but I think for Iran to ex uh, experience real change, we have to go beyond uh, the Green Movement's leadership and the reformists who have promised Iranians uh, so much. I think in the next few months, we'll face a lot of pressures and calls for war. I think the nuclear crisis will become even worse. Uh, in the short term, I see a lot that is bleak. Uh, but if we look at Iran in the long term, if we look at the Iranian population, uh, this is a country that does not want to be cut off from the rest of the world. The Iranian people do not want to be enemies with the United States or with Israel, for that matter. One of the most uh, popular Iranian uh, singers within Iran is actually an Israeli-Iranian. And so when we look at Iran as a country, although I feel... Uh, negative regarding nuclear negotiations in the short term. I see a lot of potential uh, in Iran as a country in the long term. Thank you. I have a first one over here to the speaker's left. That was very informative and very depressing. Um, <laughs> If you were advising the President of the United States and Israel came to the President and said, we're going to attack uh, Iran and we want your help, how would you advise the President? And second, if Israel did attack Iran, give us a timeline of events that would happen after that attack. I, I don't think it is in the national security interests of the United States for Israel to uh, attack Iran right now. And the reason for that is... Uh, that the Israelis by themselves can't do as much as damage uh, to Iran as they would like. Uh, that uh, Iran, after an attack, could reconstitute its program and actually develop nuclear weapons. And at that point, Iran would be even more hostile 
uh, toward Israel than it was before. Uh, I, that's why I believe that the uh, international community has to give uh, time for negotiations to proceed. Even if we don't reach a final solution, I think sanctions against Iran uh, are doing a lot to undermine the regime and really promote some of our long-term objectives regarding Iran. To answer your question, I think if Israel attacks Iran, there's a good chance that Iran will launch massive retaliations against Israel. Iran has uh, up to according to some estimate, 300 missiles that can be launched from Iran uh, toward Israel. Iran's closest ally in the region, Hezbollah, has up to 40,000 missiles that can target Israel, according to Israeli estimates. And other players uh, may get involved as well. Uh, If uh, there is an Iranian retaliation against Israel, there's a really good chance that the United States could become involved, that it could be U.S. pressure uh, against the United States to get involved militarily. And even if the United States doesn't get involved initially, I think there's a good chance that Iran will retaliate against U.S. bases in the region. Uh, The Iranian leadership believes that Israel will not undertake any actions against Iran unless it has gotten a green light from Israel. From the United States, I mean. Um, they don't necessarily see the two sides as independent actors. Uh, according uh, to a lot of statements they make, even the reformists within Iran, uh, Israeli and U.S. interests are really in sync. So if Iran retaliates against uh, U.S. interests in the region, I think we could see a much bigger war. I think potentially one of the biggest wars since the Vietnam War. And I don't want to be alarmist, but even a few months ago, as you remember, Iran threatened to close the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, and I, I don't think they're necessarily serious at that point in affecting shipping in the Strait of Hormuz. But when we look at Iran's military capabilities and doctrine, they have been practicing closing the Strait for years and years and years. And at some point, they may decide that it is in their benefit to interfere with shipping. And if that happens... Ultimately, the U.S. military would defeat Iran. The Iranian military doesn't stand a chance. Uh, But oil prices could really shoot up and really affect the global economy. There's there's been some questions about Khamenei's health. So in the event uh, 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 something happened to him, what would his successor uh, be like? Like you said, there have been rumors about his health. He looks pretty healthy to me, but I'm not his doctor. Uh, however, there have been rumors that uh, he has cancer, uh, that t- even two or three years ago that he was going to die soon. Uh, he's still alive. I believe he's around 73. And for an Ayatollah, that's pretty young, actually. They tend to live uh, until a very long age. Uh, there is no designated successor to Khamenei within Iran. Uh, there's a formal process. Uh, there's a body called the Assembly of Experts that would choose his successor. Uh, however, if the decision is made, it will be very informal. Uh, for example, Khamenei came to power because his uh, predecessor, Ayatollah Khomeini, basically picked him uh, along with Rafsanjani's help. And I'm, I'm sure Rafsanjani regrets that today. Uh, but there was a very informal process where Khamenei... Um, was made supreme leader. But there's the potential that we may not have a supreme leader in Iran in the future at all, Um, that uh, we could have a system where the revolutionary guards uh, rule Iran without choosing a supreme leader, or um, they may even choose 
a nominal supreme leader. The Revolutionary Guards in the last few years have amassed great economic and political power within Iran. And right now, besides Khamenei, they're the key decision makers. I think in a lot of ways, in the short term anyways, uh, Iran's fate rests in the hands of the Revolutionary Guards. Um, But a lot could change in Iran. Khamenei has even talked about getting rid of the presidency. So uh, these institutions are not set in stone. They've been created uh, due to political expediency at the time. And uh, if those in power in Iran... Uh, think in the future that they shouldn't have a supreme leader, I think there's a good chance that Iran might not have a supreme leader. Next question is in the middle. You've indicated that there would be a very adverse situation if an attack were to take place. Given all the circumstances, what do you think are the probabilities of an attack taking place within, let's say, the next year? I I don't know what the probabilities are. It's hard to tell. it ebbs and flows. I think a couple of months ago, there was more optimism regarding the Istanbul and Baghdad talks. Now I feel, just talking to people in D.C. before coming here, there's great anxiety, greater anxiety, I should say. Uh, but you never know. Because the regime is under a lot of pressure, uh, it may come to the point where uh, it decides to negotiate uh, and negotiate seriously. I think the issue right now, looking at the negotiations, uh, is a matter of sequencing. Uh, the P5 plus 1 wants Iran to make concessions to build confidence. So they want Iran to uh, ship out its 20% enriched uranium, which can be used for nuclear weapons, uh, to shut down a key facility uh, that's under a mountain, the Fordo facility near the holy city of Qom. Uh, that's an Israeli red line as well. They're very worried about this facility because they can't damage it uh, as much. And in turn... Uh, then the P5 plus 1 is willing to reconsider sanctions. The Iranian side wants the P5 plus 1 to make promises first. They want sanctions relief and uh, an official acknowledgement of Iran's right to enrich uranium. Then Iran will make concessions, whereas the P5 plus 1 wants Iran to make the first move. Uh, And that's, I think, reasonable. Uh, The two sides don't trust each other. They shouldn't trust each other, Uh, but I think this makes negotiations look uh, like a game of bricksmanship. And I think once, if, if I should say, the negotiations completely collapse, then the chances of war uh, will go higher. It's not in the interest of any of the sides to go to war. The regime in Iran doesn't want war. The U.S. does not want war. And a lot of Israelis don't want war either. Uh, looking at Israeli public opinion polls, Israelis prefer Israel to strike Iran if the United States is involved. If the United States is not involved, they don't favor military strikes. So nobody wants war. Uh, but as history has shown, war sometimes happens inadvertently. Uh, the different sides miscalculate, and they end up in a position where they can't solve anything un- unless through military force. We have a question to your left. Great. Thanks for the talk. Um, it's been often... Uh, seen in the media where they say that Ahmadinejad said he wanted to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Um, I've read that there are claims that if you look at what he actually said in his native language, he was referring to the concept if he wanted to get rid of Zionism as a political movement. I wonder if you uh, have looked into what the translation is and if that's true. And secondly, um, what kind of lifestyle are the supreme leader and the senior religious clerics leading? Are they austere religious figures? 
or do they lead materialistic, lavish lifestyles and are they the kind of people who are willing to die for their ideological beliefs? Those are very good questions. Uh, Ahmadinejad has explicitly threatened Israel. He's not the first Iranian leader to do so. When he made that speech, actually, uh, he was repeating Ayatollah Khomeini's speech regarding wiping Israel off the map. I don't think it's so much that the language is important. It's Iranian intentions. And although the regime in Iran is ideologically opposed to Israel, I I don't think that they want to develop a nuclear weapon to lob at Israel the first chance they get. They know that Israel has vast nuclear capabilities, uh, that Israel could wipe out Iran and the regime if it is attacked. Um, Nevertheless, the Iranian leadership's language causes anxiety in Israel. And if you're an Israeli living in a very small, vulnerable country, it makes sense that you'll be nervous uh, about Iranian intentions. just because Ahmadinejad doesn't necessarily mean that he wants to wipe Israel off the map. He has expressed his hostile intentions towards uh, Israel's existence. I would say that the, the regime really doesn't want to wipe Israel off the map militarily. Uh, and Khamenei has talked about this very explicitly and directly. He thinks that Israel as a society and system of government won't last, that it won't last Uh, given historical realities according to Khamenei's beliefs. So the opposition is really ideological uh, in nature. It's not irrational. Uh, There's no irrational motivation to destroy Israel. Nevertheless, if Iran developed nuclear weapons, then you have two states uh, opposing each other that have nuclear capabilities, uh, two states that don't communicate with each other, and I think that really increases the chances of an Edward an inadvertent war, even nuclear war. Uh, so that's why an Iranian nuclear weapons capability would be highly destabilizing for the region and should be uh, prevented. Uh, to answer your second question, it's not clear what kind of lifestyle Khamenei himself uh, has as a person. He portrays himself uh, to be very austere. But we know those around him have become fabulously wealthy in Iran. A lot of Revolutionary Guards officers own entire sections of the Iranian economy, whether it's in telecommunications, infrastructure, road building, uh, even building medical equipment and uh, automaking. And Iran is rated as one of the most corrupt countries in the world. And the officials in Iran, including the Revolutionary Guards and the clergy, are making a lot of money. Uh, And there have been reports within Iran And the regime itself has actually um, helped reveal a lot of this. Uh, Different political figures attacking each other for the money they've made. Um, uh, Recently, uh, one of the key bankers in Iran fled to Toronto, Canada, and has been accused of uh, embezzling $2.5 billion. And uh, that's really, I think, the tip of the iceberg there. Of course, uh, Khamenei in his public speeches has said, well, let's not talk about this very much. Uh, But Iranians know what's going on in their country, that... um, a few members of the elite are basically uh, taking advantage of their wealth. And uh, when the Islamic Republic came to power, one of its promises, one of its missions, was to help the dispossessed, to uh, right uh, the injustices in Iranian society. Uh, But when we look at Iran, Iran is much worse than even during the Shah's time. And you don't have to take my word for it. Even uh, figures within the regime who established the regime say the exact same thing. I have a question to the speakers, right? 
Uh, oddly, the people in Iran are worried about uh, diffusing the nuclear threat because they're afraid that if attention on Iran is gone, even though you know, uh, the value of the real has dropped 50% the past year, unemployment, etc., that the rest of the world will not care what's going on in Iran. My friends in Iran say, we're afraid that uh, the West will reach a settlement and, and then w what about us? It'll be like North Korea. We are in a tot totalitarian state, and the rest of the world will not care, even though we're supporting Syria, we're supporting Hezbollah. We're sp uh, for years, we fought the Americans in Iraq, and so on. They'll forget about us. And to some extent, I think that's true, because when you look at the regime, its real enemies are not outside of Iran, I would argue, but inside Iran. Um, the people who came into the streets, uh, the people who want to change the system. And I think to, to some extent, the regime in Iran is using the nuclear crisis as an escape valve, as a pressure valve, as a release valve. Um, it uses a nuclear program to exploit Iranian nationalism and Iranian sentiment, sentiments. Uh, so I think instead of uh, having... Um, to focus within Iran internally, it makes the enemy look like the rest of the world, basically. And uh, there are Iranians that are afraid that um, once the United States and the West uh, reaches an accommodation uh, with Iran, as you said, uh, that they will be forgotten. And I think it's because of this that we shouldn't just focus on the nuclear program within Iran. There should be a much bigger U.S. emphasis on human rights in Iran. Uh, for the United States to show that it's just, it just isn't concerned about the nuclear program and its security interests, but it really cares about the Iranian people and their future. I think uh, one of the issues has been uh, U.S. reluctance to explicitly uh, advocate for the opposition within Iran. And I'm not saying the United States should send uh, financial or technical help to the opposition. I think the Iranians are capable of challenging their own government. But I think if U.S. leaders publicly speak about the regime's human rights abuses, this will give the United States much greater leverage uh, with the Iranian people, but really in the Middle East overall. We have a question to your left. Uh, two questions. First, how do stuck nets and flame fit into this picture? And secondly, should there be a ground swell? What countries would be supporting the people, such as Qatar and Saudi Arabia, are supporting the rebels in Syria? Uh, there have been a number of cyber attacks against Iran, like you mentioned, Stuxnet and uh, Flame. And we know that they've set back the Iranian program uh, that hundreds of centrifuges that are used to spin uh, uranium and rich uranium were damaged in the main facility at Natanz. Um, in addition, there have been acts of sabotage. Several Iranian scientists have been uh, murdered and assass or assassinated within Iran. And there have been a number of other mysterious uh, circumstances. I think those uh, actions have slowed down the Iranian nuclear program, but they haven't been critical in stopping Iran. Iran has reinstalled its centrifuges. Um, it has enriched more uranium. Um, the U.S. assesses that Iran has a capability in the next two or three years to weaponize this program to enrich uranium to a higher degree, assemble a crude nuclear device, and perhaps uh, in the near future fit it on top of a missile. Uh, so overall, Iran's nuclear program progresses. 
But at the same time, I think sanctions have been effective uh, in preventing Iran and getting parts to create even more advanced centrifuges. Iran has been bragging about installing uh, the IR2 and IR4 more advanced centrifuges for several years, and to to this date, they haven't managed um, to install those centrifuges. Another uh, cause of concern is Iran reaching the stage where it can assemble these uh, advanced centrifuges, and especially within the deep uh, bunkers inside the mountain facility. Um, so we'll have to see if Iran uh, goes in that direction, if it has a technical ability and the political will to do so. In terms of Syria, uh, the Syrian uprising against Bashar al-Assad is really bad news for the Iranian regime. Syria is Iran's gateway of influence into the Arab world, especially the Levant, uh, Lebanon. And if Bashar al-Assad falls, not only will Iran lose a lot of influence, but Iranians may get the idea that if the Syrians can overthrow the regime, that maybe they can as well. Uh, so it could have a domino effect um, from the Iranian regime's perceptions. And that's why the Iranian regime has supported Bashar al-Assad. They've given him money, technical advice. Uh, what they've learned from crushing the 2009 protests in Iran, they provided that advice to the Syrian regime. E uh, even Revolutionary Guards officers publicly have stated, I think mistakenly, they didn't mean to say this, but they have publicly stated that they have helped the Syrian regime crush specific protests. Uh, there have been reports of Iranian Revolutionary Guards officers in Syria, uh, for example. And Syria is a, a, a part of a much larger battle between not only Iran and the United States, but Iran and its chief uh, regional rival, Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Saudis and other governments in the Persian Gulf, like that of Qatar, are known to be providing uh, funding and weapons to the Syrian regime. Uh, I would say it's not clear what's going to happen in Syria. Um, Bashar al-Assad has managed to stay in power much longer than a lot of people thought. And indications are that he's going to go down fighting, that he will not leave Syria. At some point, he may decide uh, to flee. But right now, uh, he believes that he can hold on to power. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens after um, Bashar al-Assad falls. And this is one of the reasons, actually, Iran wants to talk about not just the nuclear program during the negotiations, but Syria as well. Uh, it, it sees what's going on in the region as part of this existential crisis. Question to your right. It seems when we talk of Iran, it's mainly through the prisms of the Ayatollah Ahmadinejad. How would you characterize the influence of the street, and how does that differ from the urban street and the rural street in Iran? Since Iran is not a democracy, Iranian people don't have a direct say in their political system. It is an Islamic republic. You can supposedly elect the president and parliament, but in reality, I think that's just a facade. Uh, Iran even after the revolution, had some elements of democracy, uh, minimal elements. Uh, but since Ahmadinejad became president and the Revolutionary Guards took power, uh, that has faded away. So really, the way the Iranian people can express any sort of opinion or dissent is to go into the streets. They can remain quiet or go into the streets, and the regime has an effect uh, shut off their participation within the political system. As I said, Khamenei has even talked about getting rid of the presidency. Uh, so 
in a lot of ways, Khamenei's regime looks like the Shah's regime uh, 30 years ago. We have a question towards the back. Yes, hi. Thank you so much for the uh, insightful overview. I The question I had was regarding uh, kind of the highly debated question of over whether the Iranian regime was a rational actor. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, it is a rational actor. And I think we're seeing that in real time. Uh, we're seeing that with... Uh, obviously, the P5 plus one talks uh, in, in Istanbul, Moscow, et cetera. And then also with Syria, just to go back to kind of what you were talking about, while the regime has, the Iranian regime has supported the Assad regime, they've made these outreaches toward the Syrian opposition. And I was wondering, just to kind of inject a note of cautious optimism, do you see some kind of, uh, in the words of you know, Dennis Ross, a, a narrowing window of opportunity here? for a deal to be made because of the calculus of the Iranian regime. I agree with you. It is a, a rational actor. They came to the negotiation table because they were under pressure. The regime wants itself to survive. That, that is its ultimate goal. It doesn't want to endanger itself. The Iranian politicians want power and money, uh, like a lot of other politicians. Uh, but in terms of... Uh, a narrowing window, I think the terminology troubles me because when we say the window is narrowing or closing for diplomacy, what's the next solution? It's, it's war. And again, I don't think the United States wants to go to war against Iran. Uh, we want to solve the situation uh, diplomatically. Um, so we have to give it a lot of time. But realistically, given the political realities in this country, we're headed toward a presidential election. Given the realities uh, in Israel, the political realities in Israel and the national security interests in Israel, and not just Israel, but a lot of our Arab allies in the region are also very worried. I think that constrains U.S. ability to prolong the negotiation uh, process. And the United States has said that we do not want a process where Negotiations go on and on and on, and I and I understand that. Um, but the issue is that the Iranian regime, a, is either unwilling or b, incapable of reaching a decision and a concession on the nuclear program. I I like to be surprised. I want to be surprised and see a deal come through. Uh, but just looking at it analytically, it doesn't look good in the in the immediate future. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the entire picture. Uh, is depressing uh, because I think the United States has a lot of leverage actually over Iran because of the sanctions and regional events. I, I don't think time is on the side of Khamenei's regime. I think that time is on the side of the United States. We have a question in the middle. Yes. Um, um, given the sort of poor track record of sanctions, sort of historical track record of sanctions, and the fact that they usually affect the men on the street much more than the regimes that they're aimed at. Uh, why are we so optimistic or even I sense some kind of glee <laughs> at what we've accomplished so far? How does this uh, uh, affect us in Iran? You're right. Sanctions do affect the average person on the street. I mean, the people really suffering because of sanctions are everyday Iranians. Uh, prices have gone up. Uh, inflation is really high, and unemployment is increasing. Um, and I think there's an awareness of the, in the United States that sanctions take a toll on regular people. And that, in fact, sanctions may hurt the elements 
within Iran that want to democratize uh, the country. But I, looking at the situation, the priority is stopping an Iranian nuclear weapons capability uh, because of the dangers of that capability for U.S. interests and really global interests and security. Uh, we have to stop Iran from developing nuclear weapons capability. And because the military option is complicated, our best option is sanctions. And it, sanctions is not... It's not a perfect tool. It has a lot of drawbacks. Uh, but it has brought Iran to the negotiating table. Two, in, three years ago, in 2009, Iran didn't even want to talk about the nuclear program. Uh, Iranian officials gave speeches to the P5 plus one diplomats uh, about historical wrongs, et cetera. Now they're talking about uh, nuclear negotiations. Uh, so they realize that in their pursuit of nuclear capability, they may be endangering their own regime, and I think this is very important. It's, there's not a glee uh, in Washington, D.C., because we want Iranians to suffer. We don't want Iranians to suffer, but we also want to make sure that Iran does not develop a nuclear weapons capability, and right now it looks like the U.S. has more leverage. Now, we should also be careful in making decisions because we don't want to become overconfident, uh, not offer Iran enough on the negotiating table and head into war despite our best intentions. What's the relationship between Iran and Iraq and what kind of influence does Iran have on the situation in Iraq? Uh, Iran has a lot of influence in Iraq. Uh, the, the current leadership in Iraq spent a lot of time in Iran in exile from Saddam Hussein. A lot of uh, key players in Iraq belong to Shia religious parties that uh, really were, some of them were created in Iran during the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, at the same time, uh, when we look at the Iraqi prime minister, Maliki, uh, he doesn't necessarily want to be a tool of Iran. He wants to be his own uh, politician, and he wants Iraq to emerge as a bigger power in the region and the Persian Gulf. So I don't think Iraq is an Iranian proxy. Uh, but because Iraq is also isolated, a lot of the Sunni governments, especially Saudi Arabia, are very distrustful of Maliki. This gives Iran additional leverage. Um, for example, Iraq has not condemned uh, the atrocities in Syria. Uh, a month ago, the negotiations, uh, nuclear negotiations, were held in Baghdad. It's not a completely safe city, but I think this was Iran's way of saying to Iraq, look, we're rewarding you uh, for backing us. We're having these important negotiations in your city. And I think that helped uh, raise Iraq's prestige. Uh, but uh, I don't think uh, the Iraqi leadership is dependent on Iran as a matter of principle, but as a matter of necessity. We have a question right up front. I uh, carpool with an Iranian uh, professor from Caltech, and so I'm listening to this all the time. And my question is, there's a lot of Iranian-born citizens, uh, American citizens, European citizens, who are very educated, very successful people. What influence do they have, do you think, in what's going on there and helping people over there? Well, a lot of them make public speeches on... <laughs> 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 I think the Iranian community in the United States has become much more active um, in the last few years. I think Iranians who settled in the United States generally have been afraid of politics. 
and getting involved in politics and policy issues because of uh, their own experience in Iran. If you get involved in politics, you can go to jail or die. Um, <laughs> but the newer generations are becoming uh, more active. I, unfortunately, I have to say that the Iranian community in this country, much like Iranian society overall, is very fractious. It's, it's hard for Iranians to agree on anything. Uh, and I think that one of the reasons we don't see decisive change in Iran is that Iranians in Iran can't decide where they should uh, be headed, that they don't have the necessary leadership. They haven't been able to coalesce around uh, the right people. So I, I hope uh, that's not the case in the future, that uh, Iranians within Iran and Iranian-Americans can become more active and hopeful uh, about politics. And you know, although I expressed some pessimism regarding nu- nuclear negotiations, when you look at Iran, uh, I see a lot that is positive. Uh, you have a very well-educated population, a sophisticated population. Um, you talked about the urban population versus the rural population. But even in rural areas, I think uh, that population has changed a lot in the last three decades. We can't just assume that the rural population supports the regime and the urban population doesn't. And Iran has become, in a lot of ways, a, a very sophisticated country. And maybe I'm just biased because I'm Iranian, uh, but I think it has more potential than a lot of other countries uh, in the region. Now, I don't think things are going to get better in the next uh, few years necessarily. It might be a decades-long process, but I think uh, the potential is there. We have time for one last audience question. will be right here in the middle. Honored to have the last question. Um, you alluded a couple of times to the U.S. elections. Um, what would be your view if uh, Romney was elected and he was president? How would he deal with this situation? There's been a lot of talk that uh, the Obama administration hasn't been tough on Iran, uh, that we haven't been able to stop Iran's nuclear progress. But I think whoever becomes president, um, whether he or she is Democrat or Republican, is going to face the same constraints regarding U.S. policy toward Iran. Um, the Obama administration's policies toward Iran are in a lot of ways a continuation of uh, the Bush policies regarding Iran in terms of increasing pressures and getting Iran to the negotiating table. Um, so whoever becomes president, I don't expect a magical solution to be found. We have to keep uh, pursuing the same policies as we have across different administrations. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.